This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Thomas Friedman wrote this about the education of an idealist in the New York Times. Whenever the New York Times invites me to do a book review, I look for an excuse. I'd rather spend my extra time writing books than reviewing them. But when the book review editors asked me to review Samantha Powers' The Education of an Idealist, a memoir, I said yes without hesitation. And I'm glad I did. This is a wonderful book. It's an unusual combination of autobiography, diplomatic history, moral argument, and a manual on how to breastfeed a child with one hand while talking to Secretary of State John Kerry on a cell phone with the other. The interweaving of Power's personal story, family story, diplomatic history, and moral arguments is executed seamlessly and with unblinking honesty. My guest today on The Literary Life is Ambassador Samantha Power. Welcome today. Great to be here. Um, you, you write in the preface to the book, you write these words. Some may interpret this book's title as suggesting that I began with lofty dreams about how one person could make a difference, only to be educated by the brutish forces that I encountered. That is not the story that follows. As someone who has spent your career before this as a writer, writing of a more general nonfiction nature, books like A Problem from Hell, which won the Pulitzer Prize, and uh, Chasing the Flame, which tells the story of Sergio Vieira de Mello, which I think is being made into a Netflix series, if I'm not mistaken. Why did you feel that now, was the important time to write your memoir? Well, initially, I, I really fought that idea that that uh, you know, in, in publishing, people often want uh, first person accounts, and to me, I just sort of bristled at the idea of writing a memoir, especially one that went really back into my childhood in a more detailed way than some government memoirs. Um, and I bristled because I kind of feel like you should only write a memoir after you've brokered Middle East peace, which <laughs> last I checked, I have not managed just yet. Um, so, but I, but as I began to reflect on the lessons that I learned on human rights, on foreign policy, on public service, on how to make a difference, I realized that in order to capture and keep uh, reader's attention. There's just nothing like a good story and and a, and a character who is as fully developed as possible. I mean, know that as, as a reader of fiction, a reader of nonfiction, when you feel you know the ins and outs of the character, you're more inclined to root for that person, which of course was in my interest to make people want to root for me. But also, you just want to read along. What happens next? Like a bit of a, a, a kind of thriller dimension to it as well. And I and that's the standard. Even though I've written about difficult topics. In the past, I've always wanted my my narrative to to zoom, and and so I thought a story right now in polarized times is better than something that's 
relitigating some policy debate or, you know, talking about what the world after Trump is going to look like or needs to look like. I just thought, let me just tell a good story and see if maybe then the effect of that story would be, this is my hope, to leave the reader with the sense that they too can do something, not necessarily in foreign policy or diplomacy or anything I happen to have worked on, but just the spirit of the book is kind of caring and trying. Well, I think what's so what's so fascinating about about the book and what you achieved is that you absolutely do show how a young person moves from point A to point B and can affect change. I mean, I think young people ought to be reading this in order to understand that the choices that they make, even though seemingly daunting, um, can lead to something really great. I think the way you put it is really important. It's the seemingly daunting part that's important because, again, in in, in silhouette, right, I can wave my CV around and say, look, I was a war correspondent. I was an activist and I got to be in the government and do these things for Barack Obama. But if it's only in silhouette, young people really don't feel a great source of identification. But if you say, I was at this crossroads and it scared the hell out of me, <laughs> you know, I was terrified of getting killed in in Bosnia. Um, I'm not someone different than you. Um, as I propelled myself forward professionally, I had a disastrous romantic life as it happened. you know, and and to sort of open yourself up in those ways. when I got to the White House, I didn't know how to find the Oval Office. Uh, you know, those are things I think that people can relate to and and doubting whether in the face of big challenges you can make a difference. That's where so many people live. And that's what swallows up often that first impulse that people have when they see an injustice. They say, oh, gosh, that's terrible. I'd love to do something. And then they quickly, often, many of us talk ourselves out of it thinking that we can't. And so, again, by by opening up my insides as well as sort of what in chronologically happened to happen to me, um, you know, I hope that I'm meeting readers more where they are uh, than if I were just sort of chronologically again telling them what well, happened. Well, you you did that with me, and you made me realize, given my own personal interests, that there was another road I could have taken. And I it's think not too late, man. it may not be too <laughs> late, but there are other roads that people can take. So many roads, and the road was cobbled together. You cobbled together all on your own. I mean, it was a road. I mean, you had mentors. Clearly, you had mentors. And you had you had who you were that allowed you to move forward. I, I kept thinking as I read it, and I read about your mother, um, there was a, an interview I, saw, I heard with Catherine Hepburn once where she was asked, um, who was the most influential person in her life? And she said it was my mother. And it's because my mother gave me the freedom from fear Oh, wow. And that reminded me of you. Yeah. I mean, you took chances. That's how you got your first jobs. You just barreled through and you did things that, you know, a lot of other people in your position might not have done. How important was your mother to you? Um, everything. And is still kind of my number one reader, editor, critic. Um, but she wanted in her life to be a doctor, a medical doctor. Um and growing up, she was born uh, in Ireland in Tipperary and grew up in Cork uh, City 
and was told by everybody, girls don't become doctors. And so she went and got a basic science degree instead of going into on the medical track. But all she wanted to do was be a doctor. And so she ended up getting married, pursuing a PhD even after her basic degree in science, a PhD in biochemistry. And all she wanted to do was see patients and not be in a lab. And so having married my father, also an Irishman from Athlone, and had me, she decided to go back to medical school. And I think that you know, one effect of her journey and hearing a lot about it when I was growing up was to always feel like I had it relatively easy, you know, just to be very aware of not only the fact that she was providing for me, but also that I didn't have to fight to pursue whatever career ambition I had in my mind at the moment. I had a mother who was doing the opposite of what a lot of her family members had done, and they were saying, you know, my mother was saying, go for it, try, see what happens, mostly, except when I decided to become a war correspondent. That was the only moment of great tension. Um, but she ended up then and leaving my father, who was an alcoholic, and wanting to come to America, and to, partly because there was no divorce in Ireland, that was the only way she could separate permanently from my dad and also be with somebody else, another Irishman who she moved here with. But also that when at the time it didn't, it just was life, right, to me. But when you look back on it to be risking all of that in a in a small society, a small country, often small-minded uh, community at times, given the role of the church and so forth, but just to bust out and say, I'm, I'm going to America and I'm bringing the kids and having to wage a, a really difficult custody battle as well to get my brother and me uh, to be able to come along. So she just, but everything I did in my life was in the context of watching her go for it. And and even when, and she encountered an awful lot of sexism along the way, but she she's so Irish, you know, she'd say, ah, sure, I can't be bothered. You know, <laughs> onward pretty much was her spirit. It remains her spirit. She's actually running the kidney transplant uh, department in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York at Holy the ripe old age of seventy six. Yeah, so she's still at it, and she'll never, for as long as you know, she's ticking. She'll still be at it, trying to care for people, and to her empathy to the way she talked about her patients. Uh, they were like parts of our family. You know, when she was doing dialysis or doing transplant for some patient, I, I felt like I knew more about them than I knew about family members and others. I mean, they were just, she brought it all home with her. And and again, I would never have thought at the time that that, that was seeping in in some way, but both the storytelling involved in in, in making those characters come to life. Um, and then, of course, the way she cared and, and the way she took those problems Well, empathy home is a huge yeah. part of this book. And the empathy as a young girl that you felt, obviously through your mother, but also through the time that you spent with your dad in Ireland, mm. in, 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 in the bar that he hung out with. I mean, those, those are really uh, sort of like um, Frank McCourt scenes. Right. You know, they're quite remarkable. Yeah, the pub, the pub life that I had as a young girl. But it, was more, it wasn't just being in the pub, but it was also being among adults and talking about ideas and having them take your ideas seriously. Yeah, I mean, one of the through lines, or, or I suppose themes of the book is that the binaries of the modern moment don't suit a lot of lived experience. And I've thought of, of course, that's true when you're dealing with big policy debates and what to do about Ebola or climate change and, and the incommensurables of debates in diplomacy or in government. But I've thought a lot about it in the context of the of the pub as well, because again, in black and white, young child 
in pub with not alcoholic good. father <laughs> exhibit a of how not to parent uh and, and there's obviously as with many binaries there's there's a reason that, that that would be one's impression on the other hand there was a complexity to this because i always knew where my father was whenever i you know uh came up the stairs of it from the dank basement where I hung out most of the time and and told him I was done with my mystery novel or had finished my coloring book. He'd run out to the car and get me something new to play with and buy me fish and chips and a Fanta. And it was love. And, and yet it was also not ideal. Um, but the idea that you could um, hold your, your father's attention, your parents' attention, um, at the same time that they're doing something fundamentally destructive to themselves, th those two ideas don't really go together that no, often. No, they don't. But the, the other thing that's that comes through very clearly is you didn't hold on to bitterness in any real way. And part of that, I think, comes from your mother really not speaking that ill of him, you know, which is really important. Partly. You know? Partly I feel for bad reasons. I mean, I think I felt guilty myself, so right. I didn't I – didn't, I, yeah, I don't know why my my – Impulse. I think a lot of kids are like this, though, where their their first impulse. I think you you just love your parents so much, and they can do no wrong. And so your first impulse is to look inward, even when you have actually no objective agency. And so a lot of the the sort of anguish, because my father would would die not long after, a few years after we came to America, and you know, instead of blaming my mother for taking us away. I was sort of grateful that my mother was alive and well and and more asked myself, was there more I could have done? Could I have gone back? Could I have had I been there, would he have deteriorated in the way that he did? And and so only years later did I deal with that in me. But I definitely, I mean, especially because I think I think it was also my mother was even was before people came to understand the nature of addiction, really. I mean, she was again in medicine and so would have understood it better than most, but she still had a way of ascribing his inabil inability to to come to us to visit us, for example, which would have been a source of great sadness on my part, but she it, it ascribed it to alcoholism, right. you know, not to him, kind of not wanting to come, and and yeah, I suppose trying to protect me from the idea that every kid would have, like, well, if my dad wanted to be with me, he'd be here. Um, but I think that helped a lot. Like somehow I latched onto this kind of clinical account oh he can't you know right. he's he's, he's he's yeah he has a disease i remember right. as a kid because it you know until recently it, it, i mean in the last sort of decade or two people rarely talked about addiction in those ways like as a disease mm -hmm. they talked about it as if it was just a lack of will or something and i remember just as a kid just a yeah, disease like that's weird that drinking all those pints is a disease <laughs> it's counterintuitive but i'll take it uh and so it helped a lot i think and 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 that empathy leads to another theme that I see as an undercurrent in almost every aspect of your story, and that is the notion of dignity. Dignity under duress, either personal, professional, or political. Um, you even titled a chapter Dignity, mm. and that was the one when you encountered, you moved to Atlanta from Pittsburgh, and that's when you encountered uh, racism pretty much for the first time, I imagine. There yeah. must have been some in Pittsburgh, but you were, you, unbeknownst to you, you moved to your high school at a time, your very first high school experience 
when they were desegregating in Atlanta. And Funny. you went to one of the best high schools in Atlanta, and they were bringing uh, blacks into, they were busing blacks into that high school. Mm -hmm. Explain that a little bit and the dignity that, 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 yeah. that you saw in the kids who were your classmates. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of dignity probably resonated with me even as a, as a young person um, because of how the British occupation of Ireland <laughs> is talked about in, in, you know, in the old day. I mean, it wasn't as if I experienced British troops, you know, marching in the streets or any of those indignities personally, but it's so much a part of the, the music and the poetry and the, and one self-understanding about what it was like to be occupied, what it was like to have to sort of lower your eyes as you passed uh, by a British soldier back in the day when, when, you know, the occupation was going full, full force. I mean, which is in prior centuries. Uh, but it was, um, so that was always on my mind. I think Catholicism also talks a lot about the dignity of each individual and every, every individual being made in the image of God. And, and, and that resonated. But I think what was, what was striking when I got to Atlanta was here were these hundreds of African-American students, um, pulling up to this school in the suburbs, public school, um, a very good athletic school, academic school, as you say. Um, and the idea that you would have to get up at 4.30 in the morning and take a bus to a hub and then wait in the sometimes freezing cold or in the humid summer outside for another bus and then drive for another 45 minutes to get to school. Meanwhile, I live a 10-minute walk from the right. school. You know, I roll out of bed. My hair is still... Talk about privilege, right? Uh, yes. No, I mean, the things you don't even think about as privilege, right? You you know, if, you've, if you're a teenager, you're Oh, thinking, no, no, not that you yeah. think about it. No, no, exactly. No, it's no, I'm just... agreeing. I mean, but you... you you know, you all you're doing as a kid is as a teenager is complaining about about right. you know the long walk or to getting school, up early. You know, having to get up early, and you know pushing your mother away when she's coming to rouse you for the fourth time, and and yet I get to school, and then there are these kids who've been up for hours, right, and and yet we're all graded as if we're equal, as if we you know come with equal chance to to thrive at this school. And so I just I, I watched my classmates navigate that, and I, I can't say I had some, um, you know, epiphany or anything at the time, other than that I didn't like what I heard from. from you saw a lot of ugliness. Uh, yeah, there right. was ugliness, and and uh, and I would speak up as best I could, you know, in the face of that. But a lot of it came from parents and authority figures and so forth. So it was it was more like nails on the chalkboard. Was it even more um, more poignant because you were an other as well? You came. You were an, you were an immigrant. So, was that poignant? That look, look how they're treating me, but look how they're treating them. You mean the difference? The difference. Yeah, I, I I don't know that I would have seen it that way. I was I was welcomed. I mean, I I think it's it's just interesting what characteristic ends up being salient uh, at what time, and we're living that now in our country, of course, as well, where they could have I could have easily been. Um, not welcomed back, you know, yeah, a hundred years day. before, right? I was a as, WAP, as a Catholic, uh, as a right. Catholic, you know, and and just so there, I suppose I had some somewhere at least in my family there'd be the idea of there, but for the grace of God, go go I, you know, had we come around right. generations before, but I didn't really think of myself so much in this context. It was more, 
man, what these people have to go right. through to get the education that they, you know, many of them just the drive that they had and and the way that was in many cases not rewarded, you know, not even an effort to accommodate kids who who for example if you stayed and needed extra help from a from a tutor or from the librarian or from you a school counselor, you couldn't right? get a bus home or if you're an athlete right no athlete you could athlete you could you, you get could. the activity bus oh, okay. but you had to wait until seven o'clock at night for it to come so, so you get home at nine ten o'clock at night right. and you have to get up again at 4 30 i mean so so it's more problematizing i suppose at a young age are you in touch with some of those i am and in fact i'm going to uh to atlanta soon um uh and it's going to be interesting to see you know again what what their reception is some of my african-american classmates with whom i'm in touch i i sent the chapter to in draft because i want to make sure my you know memory is a is a is a fishy business and and i wanted to make sure this is my memory of what it was like when you all got off the buses and some of the trepidation some of the defiance and some What's your memory? And and it, it you know unleashed that that point, for example, about uh, kids who stayed for tutoring or for academic right. help. I did not remember that. I would have known it at the time, mm -hmm. but completely blocked that out. And uh, a dear friend of mine, Torrance Brown, for, uh, classmate, just said, "Do you remember like I, I Torrance? I, he was a great football player and basketball player. He said, I was lucky. I was an athlete. But if I hadn't been, I've never been able well, to stay." And you make school. a really nice comment, and it's poignant this week with the state of California suing to try to get rid of the SAT and the ACT because standardized tests, these kids had no chance yeah. to be able to study for those kinds of and things. And those who did well, I mean, you can imagine all the extra um, co compensatory support that they right. were giving or compensatory studying that they had to do. So it was, again, this idea of, of judging everyone the same when one of us got nine hours sleep and another got five when one of us got to start doing their homework at 6 p.m. and the other started if if they were able to start at all at 10 30 11 o'clock at night i mean it was it was not a, a a fair deal on the other hand again i mean the, the bigger structural issue was couldn't we just invest in schools nearby where yeah. where they didn't have to schlep across yeah, town shouldn't their know? schools be as good yeah. as anyone else's exactly school. and and so uh, so dignity dignity comes through in politics as well. I think it can be honestly said that during the Obama administration was one of the most dignified <laughs> administrations in our history. I mean, zero scandal, people approached everything with a kind of seriousness and an honesty and a transparency. And we're now moving into a period that's the, completely the opposite. Talk about dignity in politics and how you approached the way you worked, you know, in the Obama administration. That well, way. interestingly, when I was on Obama's campaign in 2007, um, I, I, of course, spent a lot of time talking to the candidate, to the senator about messaging. And, and we both were really drawn to this idea of dignity. When you talk, for example, about human rights, or as Bush, President Bush had talked a lot about liberty, freedom, of course, we're all for liberty and freedom and and human rights. There's something special, I think, about the conception of dignity, which I think can fold all of that in, but also says something about what it's like to, to have to pay a bribe or uh, what it's like to be seen through. I don't, mean, I don't mean seen through like you're a con man and you're seen through, but rather looked past, maybe a better way to put it. And 
And so he talked a lot in the campaign about dignity. And then when I went into the administration as his human rights advisor, similarly, remember we were in a period of um, needing to to kind of um, restore American credibility on a lot of human rights issues, um, a period where we turned our back on international institutions, where torture had been instituted as official policy where people were being sent into Guantanamo and to other legal black holes. And so this idea of dignity also it folds in sort of due process and the idea that you can't just disappear a person into that kind of environment. And so that so I think it became, you know, it was on, on a list of other things that President Obama talked about. But what I saw, I saw it at work when I became UN ambassador and had the chance for the first time to be a kind of principal in my own right. Um, sort of living my days according to this ideal. And and the best example I offer in the education of an idealist was I made the judgment early on that I would go and visit each of the other UN ambassadors, which is no big deal, I should say, because yes, there are 193 countries in the UN, so a lot of ambassadors, but I didn't have to leave the island of Manhattan to visit them. It wasn't like I was going to their countries um, usually. But I wanted to do it just because it turned out that generally previous U.S. ambassadors just hang back and then expect other countries' representatives to come to them. But I thought, what are, you know, this will show that I see the dignity in these individuals and also in their countries. You know, the idea that you're a small island country um, in the Pacific, by the way, a country that may be about to be submerged by the ocean because of climate change, but the idea that you matter less or that the welfare of your people matters less. Um, than some other powerful country like China or you know Saudi Arabia or even the United Kingdom, that just seemed crazy uh, on its face. The people in your country matter too, and so to go and show that uh, to them, I think it was a major. I, about fifty of the missions, diplomatic missions I visited, fifty of the ambassadors I visited, reported that their missions had never been visited by a U.S. permanent representative before right. in the entire God. history of the UN. It's amazing. Yeah, and. But what what good does it do? Maybe maybe just a show of respect and a show of of seeing the dignity of these individuals. But I actually think, even though I came with no list of my normal transactional list of things I need out of these ambassadors, I think when it came time to get them to vote with the United States against Russian aggression in Ukraine so that the maps at the UN don't change and recognize Putin's annexation of Crimea or especially on something like LGBT rights where there's the the scope the margin of maneuver for my colleagues was very limited because a lot of them came from very homophobic countries with homophobic laws on the books but they could have a dental appointment <laughs> at the time of the vote they could find ways right through exercising that agency that would kind of wouldn't have them run afoul of the instructions they were getting, or they could make a procedural argument to their capital that had nothing to do with the substance of LGBT rights. And I and I felt like just by recognizing those individuals and seeing them as as full full people um, and being curious about their countries and the music and the food and the history and and all of that, um, I, you know, on LGBT rights, I think we were able to make strides that would have been unthinkable uh, absent those those relationships that grew out of that. That what I hope is mutual well, respect. Well, clearly, your efforts led to the United States being viewed internationally at some of the highest. Rates that it ever has been. I, I, I chalked that up of, to Obama. <laughs> well, my little well, visits, well but, your little, but, uh, but not just your visits, but even what you did with Ebola. Talk about that. That was a. That I was re, if I remember correctly, 
you made some big some big political change to allow because the Republicans are trying to do something, but I can't remember very well. What, <laughs> what were they trying is, what, to what do? What terrible thing was What, what was, were they trying to do with Ebola? They were trying to get people not to be able to come or travel. Or I go. think the main, the, I mean, two things. Uh, one was to just build a wall, uh, kind of not, not a virtual wall in that case, but not allow people from West Africa to come to the United States, so not allow Guineans, Sierra Leoneans, right. or Liberians, for example. But of course, there wasn't great subtlety or nuance in even how they understood West Africa. So you'd get them calling for people on the other side of the continent in Southern Africa, uh, you know, also to be barred from entry. So it was basically had a kind of racial dimension to it. And it was a, a deep skepticism about whether we should maintain our ties to Africa during this crisis. So that was one dimension. The other, and both were very, very destructive, would have been very destructive had they been implemented. The other was when American health workers went and put their lives on the line into the eye of the epidemic, risking everything for the sake of trying to um, curb this epidemic. Uh, what many politicians, including some Democrats, wanted to do was to quarantine those individuals when they came right, home. I remember that. So there's some who wanted them not to come home at all. Uh, I think Trump, uh, as a reality TV show star at that time, was in that camp. But many, like Chris Christie of New Jersey and even Andrew Cuomo of New York, said, no, let's just, they can come back, but they're going to stay in a tent for 21 days, even if they're I asymptomatic. And that. if you're a doc and taking leave from your hospital or a nurse or a health worker of any kind, it's hard enough to get the leave if you tack on, you know, those extra weeks or depending on what, what different politicians were demanding, it would have been pretty fatal, I think, to the, the overall enterprise. So what Obama did, and it was such an amazing experience to be part of his team, watching him kind of ignore the politics and just thrust the United States headlong into this leadership role. But he decided to send 3,000 troops and health workers right. into West Africa. And the amazing sort of consequence of that was they were there and they you know, gave such a huge boost to the morale of people who were getting submerged. And we had predictions that 1.4 million people were going to be infected within four or five months. Mm. So this was, and at that time, like 80 to 90% of the people infected were dying. So that I mean, this Rwanda genocide level of, of death potentially anticipated. And um, so just the idea that people would be running toward them, you know, into the burning building rather than away, which was where the politics were trending and what a lot of even, even these countries' neighbors were doing, shutting their borders. Um, so that was a big boost, but also the, the just the amazing uh, logistic capabilities of the U.S. military, their ability to descend into a place, build the airplane as they're flying it, figure out how what an Ebola treatment unit even is, and then just build them, scale up, and have our health workers come in and then train the trainers because ultimately it was the people on the front lines who did the hardest work and risked themselves uh, throughout this entire months-long effort. Um, so that was amazing. But then the other feature of it was I was, of course, UN ambassador. And so I was empowered then with John Kerry and the other diplomats, but to build a global coalition. And when the U.S. leads in such a clear way, our ability then as diplomats to go to other countries and say, all right, that's what we're doing. Trump here, by the way, has a point about the risk of free riding in moments like that. But the, the way you avoid free riding is not to do nothing yourself <laughs> or to build walls, right? It's to 
articulate what you're going to do and then put all kinds of pressure on other countries. And so, you know, it was everything from the Cubans uh, sending hundreds of doctors and health workers who've been stationed elsewhere in Africa, the Malaysian government, you know, securing a donation of tens of thousands of rubber gloves, which the health workers needed in these Ebola treatment units, the United Kingdom taking a leadership role on Sierra Leone while we did, we, the United States did on Liberia, France did on Guinea. Um, and then going to China, that was a big, it was a big, it'll end up being something a hundred years from now, people may look back on as a kind of turning point in China's evolution, potentially, um, which is that we went to them and said, okay, you want to be part of a P2, a so-called P2? Okay, mm -hmm. what are you going to do on Ebola um, other than just wish well to the, to the you know, you're, you're boasting about all of your investments throughout and on infrastructure in Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, all those are about to go by the wayside as these countries disappear. Will you show up and do something hard? And, and they did, uh, you know, not nearly as much as we did, but it was an interesting example and a really, really important one of how the international community can be made to work. Uh, the, the, you know, a lot of people have the sense of, quote, the UN should do X or Y. Mm -hmm. the, there is no UN, you know, with a with a with a mind and a bank account and an army of its own. There are countries, right. and there has to be a team captain and a catalyst for building that kind of coalition. We did it on climate, we did it well, on ISIS, and we did it on how, how then you know, given given the fact that that you saw what leadership can do. That's the flip side of the positive nature of leadership. And we're living through what the negative, <laughs> the negative nature of leadership when someone pulls out of the Paris Climate Agreement. I mean, that must be so dispiriting for you. Well, I think it's dispiriting for me. Less. Well, I mean, for me it is too, but for say. you particularly. I, no, well, I don't, I feel it the same way you do probably. I mean, I think none of us who were involved in the Iran nuclear deal or the Trans-Pacific well, Partnership one. or the uh, Paris Climate Agreement, I think I haven't met anybody who's like, man, we spent all those, <laughs> did all that hard work and we instead. I don't mean it. Yeah, no, I, know. I, 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 mean you know I mean more from a, yeah. you know, from like, what are they thinking? Yeah. What is going on here? I think it's. I think we have the same feeling, though, those of us who are in the administration, as you do, which is just, what are we doing? You yeah. know, what are we, we don't have any time. What are we doing on climate? We don't, I mean, we're here in Miami. What the hell are we doing? Look right. at Venice this week. Right. Um, you know, we but do I, I not guess, have time but, to- But the to thoughtfulness, the, the planning, the, you know, and then, and then basically to be so capricious in the way you make policy today, not you, meaning our government is making policy today, it's a complete, it's criminal. It's, it's, a, it's a crime And that, it's so dangerous. That is dangerous. It's That's so dangerous. dangerous in the world it's in, so a, in a way. It's so dangerous in the world. And, and the challenge for any successor, note how I like to <laughs> skate over the present, <laughs> quickly get to, we can talk about the past it's, and we can talk well, about Well, there the is future. somebody keeping track of everything that's changed. <laughs> Do you know that there's a book I out? I think so. No. There's a book out. There's a woman who's actually keeping track of every change that Trump has made huh. over the previous administration. That's I didn't, no, so I we can just that. go back and tick off. Well, there'll be a certain <laughs> amount of that, right? But on things like destroying our diplomatic corps, you, you don't get to just say, well, hey, what, I, hey, we're back. You know, where are all the diplomats? How, how did that make you feel? It must have made, it made me feel wonderful to hear uh, the ambassador yesterday. 
or two days ago when she gave up her testimony and she got a standing ovation. It was beautiful. And I think what I've seen just through emails and other forms of communication with the diplomats who made, if I ever looked smart or creative in my job was because of these career civil servants and foreign service officers who'd worked also for George W. Bush and who made that transition to Obama and then stayed on expecting to make the transition to Trump. I write about some of them uh, in the book at the end because I thought after the election, maybe someone that would want to leave and they were just completely stoic and just like, this is what we do. You know, we the, he doesn't have a lot of expertise around him in foreign policy. We stay. We're going to stay and we're going to support and we serve the rule of law and we serve the Constitution. We serve above all the American people. And so Masha Yovanovitch was, is just, again, reflective of that at a higher level. And um, I think it's been so dispiriting for um, watching not not the deep state, but as Bill Burns, the former deputy secretary, put it, um, uh, the weak state, you right. know, the weakening of, this, of, of the apparatus of statecraft. And as your influence diminishes in the world, you need diplomacy more, not less. As China, you know, people talk about American declinism and so forth. There is relative, in terms of relative economic might, even military might, those trends are real. And we're going to be grappling with those for decades, for centuries. Um, but that's when you need diplomacy. That's precisely when you can't well, rely on brute force. And I force. think a lot of people don't realize the the danger in not having a secretary of state like Pompeo standing up for his people. Well, that's what I was going to say. That must be yeah. horrific I think, for people I think it is, there. but I think that ship has sailed quite a yeah. while ago. Uh, and the notion of him advertising himself as bringing a swagger back to the State right. Department is, is so absurdly contrary to what he has actually brought, which is a level of demoralization that's never been seen, I think, in the history of, of the department. So it is these career diplomacy. folks that yes, we rely but on. But to your point uh, about Masha and her testimony and that of Bill Taylor and, and George her, Kent as well, Kent. Um, you know, the, the morale boost, dignity again, of seeing your colleagues just say what's true in an apolitical way, in a completely nonpartisan, just these are the facts as we understood them. This is uh, why we sounded the alarm, because we know that our duty, again, is to the American people and to our national interests and our national security. And um, and in order for that, and, and for, for foreign service officers who've either left or who've stayed and been marginalized or who've been denigrated by the president of the United States, to watch these individuals uh, take the oath of office, tell the truth, again, in a, in a dispassionate way, but they're speaking on behalf of all of the individuals who have felt so debased by these last three years. And, and I think it's been a tremendous morale boost. People talk about the chilling effect of Trump's tweets and witness intimidation, all that. Uh, on, on one level, of course, that I mean, that, that, that it is terrifying to think of what certain Trump supporters might think about doing on the basis of uh, of these um, lies and the slander and so forth. But by and large, I think there there won't be a chilling effect. You will see it's like a Spartacus moment where people are just like, you know, you only live once, and we care more about our country than the particular right. political or financial interests of one man. I think we're seeing that in journalism as well which is where you started out. I think journalists are now stepping up and realizing that they need, their voices need to be heard as well, mm, I yeah, think. Definitely. No, um, absolutely. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but we are at the Miami Book Fair and it's soon time for you to go on. <laughs> so, But it's cool because there's traffic and we always start a little bit late and I control a little bit of that. So I'm going to keep you here for just another minute and or 
two and see if you can read a little bit from your book because the voice is so wonderful that I would love our our listeners to hear a bit about that. Thank you so much. Um, well, I will read from a time where I was young, <laughs> when I was young. I was uh, 18 years old and it was the summer after my freshman year in college and I had one ambition in life which was to be a sports reporter. So I was taking notes on an Atlanta Brave San Francisco Giants game in Atlanta, Georgia uh, at the CBS affiliate uh, in order to cut the sports highlights for the evening news. Um, and next to me were CBS video feeds from all around the world. So here's my reading. And this was June 1989. On the feed from Beijing, where it was already the early morning of June 4th, I saw a startling scene playing out. Students in Tiananmen Square had been demonstrating for more than a month, urging the ruling Chinese Communist Party to make democratic reforms. The protesters had used styrofoam and plaster to build a 30-foot-high statue called the Goddess of Democracy, which bore a close resemblance to the Statue of Liberty. They lined her up directly opposite the portrait of Mao Zedong, making it look as though she was staring down the founder of the repressive Chinese state. But the day I happened to be working in the video booth, the Chinese government was cracking down. I watched as the CBS camera crew on the ground filmed soldiers with assault rifles ripping apart the students' sanctuaries. As tanks rolled toward Chinese protesters, young people used their bicycles to try to flee the scene and transport the wounded. In the raw, unfiltered footage playing in front of me, much of which would not be broadcast, I could hear the CBS camera person arguing with the authorities as he was jostled. At a certain point, the monitor went black. The feed from China had been terminated. I sat in the booth, aghast at what I had seen. I found myself wondering what the U.S. government would do in response, a question that had never before occurred to me. That week, the front pages of all the major American newspapers printed a photograph of a man in Beijing who became known as Tank Man. The man wore a white shirt and dark pants and carried a pair of plastic shopping bags. He was pictured standing in the middle of a 10-lane Chinese boulevard, stoically confronting the first tank in a column of dozens. The stark image arrested my attention. That, I thought, was an assertion of dignity. The man was refusing to bow before the gargantuan power of the Chinese military. His quiet but powerful resistance reminded me of the images of the sanitation workers in Memphis whose strike Martin Luther King Jr. had joined shortly before he was assassinated in 1968. They had carried signs that simply read, I am a man. Although Tank Man's subsequent actions received less attention, video footage showed him taking an even more remarkable risk. He climbed onto the tank's turret and spoke with the soldiers inside. After he stepped down and the tank attempted to move past him, the man moved with it, daring the soldiers to run him over. A few minutes into this grim dance, men in civilian clothes dashed onto the road and hustled Tank Man away. The convoy barreled ahead. The man disappeared. He's never been identified. An untold number of Chinese students, likely thousands, were killed that summer in the government crackdown. I did not respond to these events by suddenly proclaiming a newfound intention to learn Mandarin and become a human rights lawyer. But while I knew little about the protests before they started, or even about China itself, I could not shake my discomfort at having been contentedly taking notes on a Braves game while students my age were being mowed down by tanks. For the first time, I reacted as though current events had something to do with me. 
I felt in a way that I couldn't have explained in the moment that I had a stake in what happened to the lone man with his shopping bags. Marvelous. Thank you. The book is The Education of an Idealist. And Samantha Power has been uh, our guest on The Literary Life. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.